Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name's Stacy. Thank you for joining us today for a fiery hot episode here at Trashy Divorces. Y'all may want to put on your fury pants, just giving you like a little bit of warning ahead mm-hmm. of time. There mm-hmm. is some stuff in this episode that might make you mad. It should make you mad. It it will make you mad. Just giving you a heads up on that. And And who do you have for the people this week? You know, sort of ripped from the headlines. Ripped from the headlines. Andrew Cuomo hmm. retiring, retiring, resigning, resigning as in disgrace governor of the state of New York. Today we are going back to 1990 and talking about his marriage to Carrie Kennedy. Of those Kennedys, of those Kennedys, and it was fairly trashy. And this week, who are you bringing us? Whoo! Wild man of the keys, Jerry Lee Lewis. Seven marriages, possible murder, possible murders child bride scandal. There's a lot. It's fury pants time, friends. Great balls of fire. I'm reaching in my uh, boil, boil, toil and trouble, pulling out our magic mirror. Let's give some thanks to our new Patreon supporters this week, and then we'll get started with the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much to Kate H., Jennifer K., Megan, Tara I., and Elizabeth H. Thanks so much for joining us over there. Thanks to all of our existing patrons. Thank you for coming and listening to Trashy Divorces today. Goodness gracious. Great balls of fire. What do we have to do now, I guess? Kick back that piano bench. Sexually harass an aide. <laughs> and go, go, go. <laughs> so, Alicia, you've got us a uh, ripped from the headlines story, huh? It's been a big old great big ball of fire in New York this week. Indeed, it has. A little bit of a political scandal. Now, New York State, Mm -hmm. always its fair share. (laughs) Anthony Weiner, put your phone away, man. Sure, Nobody can forget that. Hotbed. We got uh, AG Eric Schneiderman, 2018, Mm -hmm. with four women making accusations of abuse. Indeed. Going to add another one this week. So I want to take you back in time. Talk about another one, Elliot Spitzer. Indeed. 2008 has a sex worker scandal. Everyone's favorite. His lieutenant governor, David Patterson, will not run in 2010 because of, well, scandal. Hmm. David Patterson is later fined for lying under oath, so good. These things happen. This actually gives Andrew Cuomo the opportunity to run, which he will and win Mm -hmm. because of scandal. Making Kathy Hochul his lieutenant governor in 2014 when he runs again. Mm -hmm. 2018, she's there. So big congrats to her. New governor. Our congresswoman from Buffalo for just being maybe the woman who is the epitome of how women get ahead in the world. Literally standing around while all the men in front of her fall. Well, her entry into politics. Not to diminish her. Yeah, I I don't want to diminish her. No, not at all. I'm just saying, Mm -hmm. like, good on you, uh, Kathy. Her run to politics, uh, scandal-ridden, not hers. Not her scandal. Representative Chris Lee resigned due to a sex scandal, so Mm -hmm. Kathy Hochul will win the special election to succeed him. Mm -hmm. She will lose the general in 2012 to Chris Collins, who will eventually resign in 2019 due to some other- Insider trading, I think. Legal issues. Sure, he got pardoned. Yeah. Good for him. I love New York, y'all. But wowza. Okay. Th- thanks, New Yorkers, for ripped from the headlines. What's happening this week? We could sure. go into all the all the recent scandals, but the newest one. Best Levin writing for Vanity Fair, I think, does a great job of summing it up in two paragraphs this week. So I'm reading from Best Levin. On Tuesday morning, New York Attorney General Letitia James mm-hmm. released the results of her office's investigation into sexual harassment allegations against Governor Andrew Cuomo. How'd that go? For a time, it seemed while the report wouldn't necessarily portray Cuomo in a great light, it might not be a complete and total career ender, which, in retrospect, was a quaint thought. Instead, over the course of 165 pages, James's office referred to numerous cringe-worthy stomach-churning instances in which the governor sexually harassed nearly a dozen women, with the AG noting in a press conference that after interviewing 179 individuals and examining more than 74,000 documents, a 
quote, deeply disturbing yet clear picture, unquote, of Cuomo's behavior had emerged. In one instance, for example, the governor met a female state trooper at an event and then requested she be transferred to his personal detail, despite the fact that she did not have the required three years of experience. After she joined his team, Cuomo allegedly asked her why she didn't wear a dress while working, a comment a senior officer suggested she should keep to herself, and on another occasion, warned her not to get married because your sex drive goes down. This is just great boss work here. I'm uh, real happy that people had to work for this dirtbag. At another point, the report says Cuomo told the trooper she was, quote, unquote, too old for him, and that he was looking for a girl who could handle pain, quote, unquote. He said this to a cop? Yeah, security detail. Jesus. On three occasions, each of them corroborated the governor allegedly touched the trooper in an inappropriate manner notes the Washington Post. So yikes on bikes. That is some weird dominance stuff. Andrew Cuomo announced his future resignation this week, of course, denying all charges of mistreating Yeah, he's pure as the driven snow. This is from AP. Cuomo called some of the allegations fabricated and denied he touched anyone inappropriately, but he acknowledged making some aides uncomfortable with comments. He said he intended as playful and apologized for some of his behavior. He portrayed some encounters as misunderstandings Mm. attributable to generational or cultural differences, Mm. invoking his upbringing in an affectionate Italian-American family. It's because we're Italian. Boy, that's... He says, naturally, this is all political, tut-tut, I'm, I'm blameless. I'm Italian. We love spaghetti and sexual harassment. What can I do? But the three-term governor, big guy that he is, is stepping down, saying he could not put the state in months of turmoil. Oh, my God. I know. More like stepping down and not getting impeached keeps yeah. him open to run again at some time in the future. It keeps him eligible for all benefits and pensions. Mm-hmm. So they- I wouldn't call it doing No. It's not doing the right thing. It's doing the smart thing, I guess, if you're into perception and controlling perception and reality around you, which this guy is. Hey, New Yorkers, I'm going to be mad at you if you let this man back into elected office. I just want you to know, personally, from me to you. There may be some criminal charges coming. I don't know. There are a number of investigations going on, but we are not here for any of that. Okay. We're here for the trashy divorce. Thanks. There's a pretty trashy divorce Uh in here. Oh, good. So we're rolling off into uh, generations of Kennedys now. We covered Teddy Kennedy Mm -hmm. not too long ago. Yep. Patricia Kennedy Lawford ages ago. Today it is time to cover the trashy divorce of the almost former governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and his bride, Mary Carey Kennedy. Mary Carey. Mary Carey. Okay. Much credit here to Michael Schneerson. He has a great book called The Contender. I used a number of his quotes in this story, as well as other resources. Nikki Swift did a great job. Page six. As always, you can find mm-hmm. all references for all of our stories at TrashyDivorces.com. Mary Carrie Kennedy, mm-hmm. our bride. You know her family name. Yep. Carrie's a Virgo baby. She's born on September 8th, 1959. She is the seventh child of Robert and Ethel Kennedy. Robert and Ethel will have 11 children before his tragic murder in June of 1968, right when Carrie's turning about nine years old. Wait, so is she the sister of RFK Jr., then the anti-vax weirdo? Okay, great. Fantastic. Yeah, they have, she is the sister of Robert Kennedy Jr. Rory's in that mix. Lots of kids. 11 kids. Wow. Okay. Well, they're Catholic, so they also had no choice in the matter. (laughs) (laughs) Life comes at you pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And Carrie coming into the world in 1959, when she's three days old, her dad is going to resign from his job as chief counsel to the Senate Rackets Committee. We investigated rackets back then. Bobby is now going to run his brother's campaign for president. Hmm. And Carrie's a baby, right, when all that's going on. But... Alas, she's a Kennedy, political kid, big rambunctious family. There's the compound and the good schools. She'll attend Brown University. She'll get her JD from Boston College Law School. 
Carrie takes her father's legacy and builds on it when it comes to human rights. She leads delegations into countries with tremendous challenges and devotes herself to this work, and she does fall in love along the way. Carrie has a longtime boyfriend, and these two are intending to marry when school is all finished and wrapped up, and God, it's terrible. He drops dead of a heart attack in a snowball fight. What? On the Washington Mall. Mm-hmm. Like leaving her young college and age, devastated. Oh my! I'm God. not sure of his age. Yikes! But her dreams of being a devoted wife and mother and saving the world at the same time are crushed, right? So she's looking out for a hero, a protective man who embraces her same values and passion for change. Where oh where can this Romeo be? Let's leave Mary Carey in this very vulnerable place which we will call the balcony on the Trashy Divorces Depot okay. station to meet her groom. Andrew Cuomo. You know his family name, too. Mm. He's born December 6th, 1957, Sagittarius man. He's two years older than his future bride. Born in Queens, New York, son of Mario and Matilda. Good Italian parents, four siblings. Family's doing the thing. And dad's a lawyer until dad becomes involved in politics. Mario will serve as Secretary of State in New York, then Lieutenant Governor of New York, and then as the 52nd Governor of New York in 1983-1984. Son Andrew, hotshot, graduates from Fordham University in 1979. He'll get his JD from Albany Law School in 1982, which is perfect timing. 1982 is to run his daddy's gubernatorial campaign, which Mm. dad wins. Mm -hmm. Huzzah! Carrie and Andrew? Meet through human rights work. It's what she does, and they intersect. And again, she's looking for something special. Maybe this guy is it. So they date a little. Maybe there were some red flags. Maybe Mary Carey just saw that as a carnival. <laughs> the first time she goes to his apartment, all of his furniture is covered with clear plastic. Oh my God. So he's a bit of a tidy monster. <laughs> she, like, Girls do, I want to cook for you. Maybe Uh food is her love language. I don't know. Maybe she just gets hungry. But she's also smart enough to check the oven before she turns it on because she does. And all of the original styrofoam packing is still in the oven. He's never used the oven in his place because he's afraid of getting it dirty. I feel like this is the extreme far end of all the stories you hear about, like gross bachelor pads that, okay. Yeah, he ain't peeing in a cup, is he? Okay, but alas, the heart wants what the heart wants. Carrie will say, look, he was very handsome, very charming, very funny. It was a traditional crush. Which develops. Let's talk about these two trashy families. The Kennedys, Mm -hmm. we know them, considered American royalty. Quite a lot of Mm myth-making around that story. The Cuomos, political family, but different. The Kennedys are loaded Like, way more money than the Cuomos. But money is not the only difference between these two political dynasties of families. There's some cultural differences here, too. Again, I'm going to quote Michael Schneerson here to set the stage, so to speak. To the Cuomos, the Kennedys were American royalty for all the reasons they were to everyone else. Marrying into that charismatic clan would make the Cuomo's royal too, insofar as many American political dynasty could be seen as such. It would also draw them into a private world of wealth and privilege, a planet away from Queens, New York, home to three generations of Cuomo's. The Cuomo's played stickball on the streets of Holliswood. The Kennedys played touch football on their oceanfront lawn at Hyannisport. Andrew had driven a AAA truck for extra money and taken out student loans. Bobby, the late senator's second oldest son, spent his spare time training falcons. The Kennedys could saunter into Harvard as they pleased and go on to the Kennedy School of Government. Andrew was awed by that. Over the next 15 years, he would invoke the Kennedy name so often and with such delight that his listeners would be startled by it and not forget. Here's the other side of the story, still quoting Michael Schneerson. But the Kennedys were somewhat less impressed by their prospective in-laws. 
The Cuomo swagger didn't square with the old guard reserve imparted so sternly by Joseph Kennedy to his children and from them to theirs. The Kennedys were also more relaxed than the Cuomos. Not just quick to throw a ball around, but happy to join in rambling dinner debates to brandish high ideals. Quote, Andrew refused to do anything fun, anything without a clear benefit to his career, a family acquaintance said years later. After three generations, the Kennedys were at ease with who they were and not shy about their shortcomings. The Cuomos, as one journalist noted, were, quote, tight-knit and tightly wound, fiercely protective of any chink that might be perceived as a sign of weakness or vulnerability, unquote. One insider asked what the family thought of Andrew as a match for Carrie, sighed and said, you just try to be supportive. Well, thanks, Aunt Betty. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Clannish as they were, the Cuomos were appalled to find the family dragged, and by early 1989, into court for a messy estate battle after the death of Andrew's maternal grandfather. It was a story that aired deep sibling rivalries, jealousy, resentment, and greed, all over a sum of money the Kennedys could only have viewed as piddling. The suit was settled, but the Kennedys had to wonder... Were these Cuomos, with their brooding egos and their battling relatives, really the right fit for America's first family? All right, trashy friends. All the red flags flying in the breeze at the carnival. We got the shabby chic preppy family and a dude who covers his couches in plastic. He goes up to Hickory Hill, the family farm. Does not go great. The first time he visits in McLean, Virginia, Andrew finds himself at a boisterous gathering with most of the Kennedy brothers at one end of the table when the subject of Ocean Mark, this Florida SNL that Andrew had business in with disastrous results. It's pretty scandalous, like late 2000 aughts. Bobby Jr. asked, so what did you do with that bank in Florida? (laughs) Douglas Kennedy, Carrie's brother, will say, Andrew then goes into this 10-minute speech of nothingness, not making any sense. The whole table stops, and we're listening to this very defensive explanation. Finally, he finishes, and there's a lull, and one of the brothers says, So what did you do with that bank in Florida? (laughs) And everyone laughs but Andrew. (laughs) Where could it all go wrong? It's a mystery. Let's get these two hitched. It's going to be awesome. Oh, clearly. Andy, our fair groom, is going to propose on Valentine's Day 1990, but not without a lot of thinking and negotiation. He's brought in his aides. He's talked to journalists. He's talked to press people. Been thinking about it a lot. Got a lot of polling data on how this is going to play. This is a terrible sign. It's definitely involved the feelings of the press and possible constituents before you undertake your marriage vows. Mm -hmm. All right. He asks. What, like if she doesn't poll highly, he won't marry? Like, is he in love? How about we fundamentals first here? Okay. This is Shanae He asks. She says yes. The press is lit up. The story has everything the New York Times gushed. Love, politics, history. Carrie was giddy too. I think this is the happiest day of my life, she said. As for Andrew, he described himself as a very lucky man and waved off questions about a prenuptial agreement as tacky. The press now begins calling them Cuomalot. Oh, God. Do you know about that? Like Camelot, but Cuomalot. Okay. I don't think I was really familiar with Andrew Cuomo until last year, really. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I will tell you that I'm a believer in both parts of a couple planning their special wedding day. I do think that each person should be represented and make a ceremony of the things They both should be there. They should be, you know, present Mm -hmm. and involved. Mm -hmm. But Carrie says yes. And Andrew Cuomo takes over wedding planning. He has three ring binders, Mm -hmm. multiple ones, all with laminated pages, with all the details about his big day. And Carrie's like, I'm the bride here. And it's kind of like, oh, isn't he manly and confident? Isn't that what every bride just wants their husband planning Mm. the entire wedding? Or controlling would be another... Just wait, things get worse. Oh, good. So the Kennedys, not sure if you've heard, they're Irish. (laughs) Typically at family events, including weddings, there's uh, some drinking. There's a lot of toasts that happen at weddings. It is essentially the reason the Kennedys get married, is for the raunchy 
toast party that happens during the wedding reception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is literally everybody's favorite part. Andrew Cuomo forbids them. Nobody, not going to happen. There will be no off-color anything happening on my, ha, just kidding, our big day. So, like, he can't take a joke. So these are... Everything is controlled. A little roasty and then something sweet yeah. to follow. Is this more or less That's, how it goes? A like toast. Gosh, when you were a kid, you had such huge ears. We figured you'd never walk, you know, and then, but look at your, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he, yeah. he can't, he can't take even a light ribbing. No, he can't turn on the heat in the oven because remember there's styrofoam in it. Got it. Got it's it. It's a good, good allegory there. Got okay. It. So the Kennedys already kind of hate him, even before the wedding day, which will arrive on June 9th, 1990. Ah, June wedding. St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, D.C. This is the place where her uncle's funeral was held 27 years earlier. Carrie will carry gardenias and white roses. Her mother, Ethel, is in pink chiffon. 300 guests attend the big day. There are 15 bridesmaids and 11 Flower girls and boys. Carrie walks up the aisle alone. What a visual. Not tremendous? Hmm. Yeah. So Cuomo-Lot's now a thing. The two of them are going to find a six-bedroom house in the Queen's Enclave of Douglas Manor. The Kennedys will help with that purchase financially. Was it six bedrooms because they were planning on having... Big, large family. Big, big... Big, large family. But until they buy their swanky six-bedroom home... They're staying at Hickory Hill, her childhood home in McLean, Virginia, and good for her, bad for him. See, the Kennedys, connections are everything. They stay friends with their exes of either sex because these are the kids in our generation and our parents and aunts and uncles know the generation before. And it's the country club set where everybody's connected and plays nice to your face. There's no breaking up in everybody plays with everybody. There's no... You stay friends, at least cordially, right. for country club matters. Sure. Everybody plays nice to your face. Don't make the bar weird. Guess who can't handle it? I wonder. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cuomo can't. Carrie is not allowed to interact with any of her previous boyfriends ever. These dudes are long married with families mm-hmm. of their own. Mm-hmm. They dated when they were 13 at the regatta that one summer. Yeah. Right? No, you're not even allowed to talk to them. What's wrong with I mean, I have a few thoughts on that, but I will keep them to myself. So, again, Michael Schneerson, this is a really very interesting reading. I will say the new rule reinforced the doubts the family had had about Andrew from the start. He wasn't fun. He didn't get fun. He was, to put it mildly, a spoil sport. Unlike the Kennedys, too, he didn't mask his ambition with charm. And no one, not even his in-laws, would stand in his way. And as Andrew Starr at the Housing and Urban Development Mm -hmm. rose, he seemed increasingly to regard those in-laws with disdain. He hated gatherings in Hyannis. He always felt like the odd man out. The joshing around, the freewheeling talks, Andrew was just too tightly wound to join in. Sounds great. Really fun. Sounds like just terrific. By two years into the marriage, she's pleading with him to go to marriage therapy. Three kids do come along. They have twin girls and another daughter. She will beg him to please read this book on parenting or please go to our kids' schools and visit. But like I say, he uh, does get a job in the Clinton administration, assistant secretary of HUD. So they marry 1990. It gets progressively worse, but kind of the final straw is December 1997. This is bad. There is a tragic death in the Kennedy family, Michael Kennedy. This is the sixth child of Robert and Ethel. He's a little older than Carrie. He dies in a skiing accident in Aspen. He's a private kind of guy. He's not a Kennedy that's out. I'm a Kennedy, you know, so the family wants to grieve the loss of their son and brother and uncle and, you know, great person they've known very privately. Mm -hmm. This is very quiet. We're going to come together. Everyone is in grief. Yeah, I don't even remember this. So He's not a public figure in any way, and they want to remember their brother in a way that celebrates his life. Totally understandable. But there's the press, and they're surrounding the compound. None of the Kennedys are paying attention to this because they're grieving 
the soul that they've lost. Someone's paying attention to the press hiding out just down the street. Andrew Cuomo, helpfully, sneaks out of the house, wanders down with his brother Chris to speak to all the press. And the Kennedys are inside watching on television where there's Andrew and Chris breaking in live with a press report from the Kennedy compound. And they're like, what the fuck? He just went to go to the bathroom. And here Andrew and Chris are talking to the press about Michael and the family. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, so let's talk about Awkward Turtle when Mm. Andrew and Chris come strolling back in. It's quiet. It's tense. And Rory Kennedy will be the one to go to Andrew and be like, why did you do that? I'm sure that was how it was phrased, too. Andrew Cuomo responds, someone had to. You're lucky I was there to handle it. Wow. Rory out. So this is sort of the family, like, Carrie. I don't don't know what kind of conversations happened after this, but... Uh, again, from uh, this, uh, from Michael Schneerson's book, we had tried to be gracious. One family member said, in my family, no matter how someone is an enemy, you try to be gracious with them. That's how Ted Kennedy conducted himself as a senator. And it was how the next generation tried to act too. With Andrew, graciousness didn't work. Andrew always interpreted graciousness as weakness, Douglas Kennedy explained. No matter what anyone did to be nice to him, it was going to be interpreted as political. For Douglas, and so he says his siblings, that news conference after Michael's death was the turning point. That's where I started to think, this is just a bully. So there are cracks. There are some conversations. But Carrie Kennedy, dutiful wife. She is raising three kids with a workaholic husband and not really any support and probably in, you know, the general state of her affairs, maybe begins to have a little bit of a fling hmm. with uh, this guy named Bruce Colley. <laughs> in the press, they are called the polo playing Romeo in Cheat and Carry. A human who knows how to laugh, perhaps? I don't know why he's the Romeo and she's cheating Carrie, but alas. Mm, well, Bruce is married too. Yeah, so that's... So the cheating Romeo and cheating Carrie. No, polo playing Romeo, cheating Carrie. No, I know, but I mean, it, it's a little. It, it's an, it's it's yeah. a little misnamed. I, I'm going to call that headline sexist. Is what I'm going to call. Thank that. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay. So the two doing their thing, horsey people. Sure. Andrew and Bruce Colley's wife get together and like compare notes and then confront them about right. Carrie Kennedy's like. <sighs> pound sand man but andrew's so mad he's one of my friends and one of my wealthy donors how could you do this to me eat bricks anyway (laughs) bruce collie will divorce his wife but there's not a long-lasting love match carrie and bruce do not stay together like once all the dealing is done and their divorces but okay we finally make it to 2001 and andrew cuomo is going to run for governor new york Carrie Kennedy, the dutiful wife, helping him do it. And Andrew is using every Kennedy connection, every bit of name dropping. Carrie thinks he's a would be a great governor. Like you administration, man, you three ring binders. I've seen him you do the job fine. But you've been a terrible husband. She wants to him to spend more time with the family and Maybe get a little bit of support with childcare so she could go, like, it's all bad. So he will decide to take on the Republican incumbent, Governor Pataki. Okay. And Cuomo decides his message campaigning to run is that Pataki did a shitty job on 9-11, which doesn't play. I was going to say, that's that's a tough... Um, yeah, it doesn't. It's not like good. To, don't, don't politicize tragedy. Yeah. Like, just it's, don't politicize it's, tragedy. It wasn't, it wasn't a good look. 2001, he's not elected governor yeah, because he drops out <laughs> uh, because his numbers are in the dumps. Like, no, the message didn't play. And uh, yikes. He's going to drop out of the race right after the primary, only to come on home, which Carrie Kennedy will decide that is the day that she's had enough. Yikes. I want a divorce. I've been a dutiful wife and mother, and I've lived up to my side of the deal. Our youngest kid is 15. I'm out of here. Listen, Andrew, 
I know you're probably having the worst day of your life, so I'm just going to stack a few more things. <laughs> oh, no, let me tell you, she is sleeping for like the last six months of the marriage. She's sleeping behind locked doors in a bathroom. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, with She's with a, a human rights activist, and a, she is sleeping on her bathroom tile floor. Good Lord. She is subjected to brutal bullying, I'm demeaning sure. treatment. Yeah. Probably sleep in a bathroom too, but at some point she's like, I'd like a bed. Yeah, that's and not, not a floor. It's not healthy modeling for your 15 year old. Nope. It is the end of Cuomo lot, but not because they don't get done. This is 2001, 2002. They don't get done for a long time. A lot of easily identifiable tropes here. For six months after she files, Andrew Cuomo will not leave the house in order to get served papers or respond to her attorneys. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. What a jerk. Carrie will say that holidays are impossible. There are a million ways for a single parent to make the other parent's life miserable. And he plays the game really well. There are child custody battles. There's court contention. The divorce is finally final in 2005. Thus ending Cuomalot. Carrie Kennedy, though, she's a class act. She's interviewed in 2010. Just kind of like on the yard somewhere, he's doing something politically, and she's, I guess, there with her kids. And she's asked to kind of dish on it, and she won't. She'll change the mm-hmm. subject to her kids and how happy they are for their father. Like, she won't say anything bad about him, but good Lord, Carrie has not remarried. She's very happily writing and carrying on her father's legacy, and I applaud it. Good on you, Carrie. <laughs> Andrew. He's... Since the divorce carried on a very long relationship, mm-hmm. 2005 to 2019, with lifestyle person, I she, guess. I think she's a chef as well. Yeah, Sandra Lee. They broke up, mm-hmm. and Sandra Lee has been spotted in San Tropez just this past week hmm. with a big new diamond on her finger from the new guy. That story, along with all the other spider webs that I came across in research for this story, Hickory Hill. A little on Ethel Skakel Kennedy. Oh, Polo playing Romeo? This is terrible. His elderly mother was murdered a few years ago. Yeah. I ran into a lot of spider webs in my research for this episode that didn't belong here. Mm -hmm. But we're going to follow up on all of that Wednesday on Patreon. Okay. Before I give trash cans, I want to close with a quote from Andrew Cuomo. Because he does have three daughters. And in his apology, non-apology presser mm-hmm. earlier this yeah. week, he, uh, <laughs> goodness, quote, I want them to know from the bottom of my heart, I never did and I never would intentionally disrespect a woman or treat any woman differently than I would want them treated. Your dad made mistakes and he apologized and he learned from it. That's what life is all about. Great if true, I guess time will tell. Their mother was sleeping in the bathroom. Carrie Kennedy, get some halos from me. I know Kennedys do not often get halos on our podcast. That is an unusual circumstance. But Carrie Kennedy, congratulations for being the first Kennedy to get a halo (laughs) here at Trashy Divorces. And uh, trash cans for Andrew Cuomo. Governor's Mansion, at least. Mm. Filled right up with three ring binders. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Styrofoam packing. I missed out on all of that and Mm -hmm. honestly had no idea that it was that trashy, but I don't think that's anywhere near as trashy as what you're coming back to talk to us. There's a whole lot of trashy still to come, indeed. All right, we'll pop out for some sponsors and then we'll be back with The Killer. See you on the flip. We want to welcome Feels CBD to the show this week. Feels, that's F-E-A-L-S, has been helping us get a good night's sleep for a while now. And whether you're dealing with sleep issues, stress, pain management, daytime focus, whatever, Feels CBD might be just what you're looking for. Feels is a premium CBD derived from organically grown, full-spectrum hemp right here in the United States. This is a company that really cares about the details. Feels packaging is gorgeously designed, and their monthly membership makes your self-care really straightforward. I've been sleeping so well by putting a few drops of Feels under my tongue about 30 minutes before I lay down. It's really boosted my ability to get to sleep, as well as my sleep quality. 
If you're new to CBD, you may need to experiment a little to find the right dose for you. Beals really cares about the details. They offer a free CBD hotline to help you find your perfect dose. The customer service team is dedicated to making sure you get the best experience out of your CBD, whatever your goals are, and whatever your experience level with CBD. And with Feels Monthly Membership, you have one less thing on your to-do list every month. You'll get 50% off your first order, easy monthly delivery straight to your door, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Feels also has this cool three-vial flight available, like you're sampling craft beer or something, so you can actually feel how the different doses work for you. Become a member today by going to Feels, F-E-A-L-S dot com slash trashy, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash trashy to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. That's Feels dot com slash trashy. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. Stacy, you're tossing out another big, great ball of fire and murderer, maybe? Maybe. Maybe. Who can say? Tell me about Killer. We've had some good fun with episodes that take us back to Memphis in the days of Sun Records and the dawn of rock and roll. Musicians and former trashy divorces subjects like Ike Turner and Elvis Presley were transforming the early radio waves back in the 50s and American culture more generally as well. But they were not alone in that great work. Down in Faraday, Louisiana, a young man was coming up who would briefly nip at Elvis's heels before a child bride scandal collapsed his career for years. Goodness gracious, we're talking Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer, the wild man of rock and roll, and kind of a terrible person, as far as (laughs) I can tell. Fortunately for us, he's been married seven times. Less fortunately, like in theory, we could ask his ex and former wives what they think of him, but two of them died under mysterious (sighs) circumstances, so I guess we can't. Does it make him a Trashy Divorces all-star? Does the murder cancel out the honorific? Not a lot of honorifics here. Jerry Lee was born into poverty in a tiny farming town on September 29, 1935, and started playing piano alongside two of his similarly aged cousins, future country star Mickey Gilley and future scandal-plagued televangelist Jimmy Lee Swaggart. No. Yep. Money was tight, but his parents mortgaged their farm at one point to buy him his own piano. Jerry Lee and Jimmy Lee Swaggart would end up in a sort of love-hate situation later in their lives with 
Jimmy preaching about Jerry Lee as sort of the exemplar of the life to avoid. Oh my! And Cousins, in, right? In, in spite of the messenger, <laughs> it's probably not a bad message. Um, all of that is to say this was an extremely gifted family. Jerry Lee told the New York Times in 06 about sneaking into a black club in Faraday as a kid. This is Haney's Big House. This was across the tracks, and obviously segregation was strenuously enforced against people of color at the time. So this little white boy would sneak in and hide under a table while people like B.B. King were killing it on stage. And Jerry Lee says to the Times, Haney would catch me in there, take me by the nape of the neck and put me out. He said, boy, your mama would kill me and your uncle would sure kill me if he found out you were here. He said, don't come back now, Jerry Lee, and I'd be back in there in 30 minutes. I felt like I was crossing a line. I shouldn't be going there, but nothing could stop me from going. I want to listen to the music. Unless it would be God. Oh. So Jerry Lee's mother seems to have had some concerns about her son's trajectory early on. Oh, really? In particular, she couldn't figure out where he was learning all this music that he was coming home and playing on the piano they'd bought him. Like, where'd you hear that song? You know? Anyway, she enrolls him in a Bible college, hoping to lean him into evangelical music, and he quickly got himself expelled by putting a little boogie-woogie into God's own music. So we are here getting a bit ahead of ourselves because by the time Jerry Lee was old enough to be getting kicked out of Waxahachie's Bible school, he had already been married twice. Holy (laughs) cats! In a 1978 interview with Jim Jerome of People magazine, Jerry Lee says he was 14 the first time he got married. What? But that his wife was too old for him. She was 17. Do they not have laws? No. (laughs) Okay, his Wikipedia page says this happened when he was 16. So, you know, who knows? Uh, Anyway, Jerry Lee goes on. Quote, then I met Jane Mitchum. One day she told me she was going to have my child. Her brothers were hunting me with whips. (laughs) It seems like we missed an important step in... Her brothers were hunting me with whips. I was real worried, so I married her, but never properly. She divorced me, though she didn't need to. She was never my wife. What? It's already confusing, right? Okay, so what appears to have happened is that Jerry Lee married a preacher's daughter when he was 16, a young woman named Dorothy Barton, but she was weirdly not that excited about his late-night shenanigans as he was playing piano in whatever venues he could find in a region that sprawled across... Louisiana and over to Natchez, Mississippi. Thought he didn't like that. Not a, not a big fan. So clearly he was also carousing to his heart's content, and I'm sure there was ample drinking, regardless of whatever age restrictions were in place in the 40s and 50s. Whether it was love or to appease the brothers with their horse whips, uh, he filed for divorce from Dorothy or she from him, who knows. And 23 days before the divorce was finalized, <gasps> married Jane. What? This is why he says it's. It was never properly This is very murky legal territory here. Not that murky. It was September 1953, and thus was 17-year-old Jerry Lee a bigamist. (laughs) When the baby came, Jerry Lee Lewis Jr., Jane had this strange idea that Jerry Lee should stay home more and be a dad. How'd that go? This obviously was not going to happen. There was a second child in 1956, although I'm pretty sure Jerry Lee has always insisted that that second child was not his. Anyway, he and Jane divorced in 1957. Well, sort of. Oh, my. Let's talk about Jerry Lee's incredible year of 1957. He had turned up at Sun Records in Memphis late in 1956 and was instantly embraced both as a solo artist and as a session player for other Sun artists. Elvis dropped in one day, and Sam Phillips, genius and owner of Sun, let the tape run as Jerry Lee, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and the man himself jammed for a while, creating a session that would come to be known as the Million Dollar Quartet. Wow. In April 1957, Sun released Jerry Lee Lewis's cover of Big Maybell's Whole Lot of Shakin' Going On, turning Jerry Lee into a musical sensation. Kind of overnight. In November, Great Balls of Fire was released, and this instantly became a global smash hit. As the calendar ticked to 1958, the world, quite literally, was Jerry Lee's oyster. On December 12, 1957, at the age of 22, he married for a third time. His new wife was Myra Gale Brown, 13 years of age, ding, his first cousin once removed, ding, was the daughter of Jerry Lee's bass player, 
Ding! Who, if you haven't put it all together yet, was also Jerry Lee's cousin. Ding! That's a lot of red flags. Oh, and his divorce from Jane wasn't final yet. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding! Wow. Wow! So it was that on May the 22nd, 1958, Jerry Lee, hotter than Elvis by that time, Elvis was conveniently doing his army thing at that point, which, of course, is where Elvis met and began courting 14-year-old Priscilla. What is happening here? Laws, people. Laws. Oh, my God. So anyway, Jerry Lee arrives in London for the start of a 37-day tour. And, well, here's what Myra herself had to say about what happened from a 2014 Cue Point piece at Medium by writer Alan Light. She says... At that time, Elvis had gone into the army and Jerry was poised to be the king. All of Jerry's managers told him, do not take Myra to England because the British press was known to rip Americans apart. That's where all the tabloid journalism started. He said, if Myra doesn't go, I'm not going. Everyone underestimated me being aware and possibly knowing what to do. I could so easily have said, I'm J.W. Brown's daughter. That's my little brother. That's my mother. Because that was the truth. This is not helping. Okay. (laughs) If anybody had told me anything, I could have prevented this thing, but they didn't, and I didn't, and the rest is history, I guess. Because, of course, what happened is when they asked Myra, when the British press asked Myra who she was, she was like, I'm his wife. And his cousin. And he's my uncle-in-law, too. Jerry Lee said she was 15 and Uh they'd been married for two months, which would solve the divorce issue, I guess. Anyway. She's 15... 15 does not help. This is terrible. Later, she adds this in, in this medium piece, which I think is interesting. Um, when we went back home, the whole country was, shame on you, bad boy. The other thing we had back then was a hypocritical society. It was do as I say, not as I do. And if you get caught, we don't even know you. Also, a lot of people took good notes when it happened. Elvis didn't marry a little 16-year-old girl, did he? Priscilla lived with his grandmother for, what, seven or eight years? We covered all that. It's as creepy a story as you think. (sighs) This scandal absolutely ended the promising rock and roll career of Jerry Lee Lewis. The wild man behind the piano, the British press went all in. Headlines like Cradle Robber. His tour was canceled after just three shows. Oh, wow. In the U.S., radio stations pulled his music and TV offers disappeared. Uncomfortably, the single of his that was charting at that moment was called High School Confidential. Oh, God. Yeah. It stalled out. (laughs) She wasn't even old enough to be in eyes. Oh my God. All right. It stalled at 21 and then fell off the charts. He went from playing huge houses for $5,000 and $10,000 a night to scraping by, playing in bars for like a hundred bucks a night, $350 in appearance, whatever. He had been a superstar for all of one year. He was poised to supplant Elvis himself. And in an instant, it was gone. Wow. It was gone. So Myra would go on to write the 1982 book, Great Balls of Fire. Maybe don't be a pedophile. I mean. Maybe start there. Words to live by. (laughs) So Myra, who went on to write the 1982 book, Great Balls of Fire, the uncensored story of Jerry Lee Lewis that eventually became the 1989 movie, as well as a 2016 memoir called The Spark That Survived, seems to have mostly kind things to say about their 13-year marriage today. A lot of... A lot of time has passed. They've co-parented for a long time now. She says she bore a real burden because her existence in his life had cost him so much, but it's not really like his behavior improved during their marriage. She says there were like 10 years where they were genuinely happy, but there are some other stories. Like one morning she found Jerry Lee and some of his band members still up and drinking from the night before. They argued. It got heated. She called the police. So Jerry Lee knocks her to the ground and tells her that he will kill her if she ever does that again. I... No. Another time, he woke her up by thumping her on the head at 3 a.m. to demand dinner. She, as you would, you know, startle reflex, moves her arms up to protect her head, inadvertently strikes him, because I guess he's leaning over her. So he grabs her fists and starts punching her in the face while still holding her (sighs) fists leaving bruises, and says to their seven-year-old daughter, your mom has gone crazy. She's hitting herself in the face. Oh, Mm -hmm. no. This is the daughter they've co-parented. Okay. (sighs) To legitimize things, they had married a second time on June 4th, 1958, after his divorce from Jane was really and truly final. 
He's like a triple bigamist by this point. Yeah, double, yeah. But okay. in uh, 1970, worn down by all of that nonsense and plenty of infidelity and alcohol and drugs, uh, Myra filed for divorce. The couple had two children together, one of whom had tragically drowned in a pool at the age of three. No, mm -hmm. no. Here's how the Village Voice's Nick Tosh's, he's actually a, he's a music writer, but anyway, this is from an article in the Village Voice. Again, all of our sources are at trashydivorces.com. Nick Tosh's described Myra's departure from Jerry Lee's perspective in a 1987 piece. His cousin, quote, that bitch, Myra Gale, divorced him in 1971, claiming in her bill of complaint that she had been the victim of every type of physical and mental abuse imaginable, and that her husband had threatened to, quote, hire people to throw complainants in the river and to throw acid in her face. Oh, my God. There is some reason to think that the killer might not have been joking around. Let's turn our attention to wife number four. This is Jaron Gunn-Pate, whom he married in 1971. Apparently, he moves fast. But the divorce had finalized. This was not a bigamous marriage. Hooray! Congratulations. Is she over the age of consent? <sighs> you know, I don't actually know. Let's hope. Yeah, I, she, yeah she was... It was her second marriage, so yes. There's nothing for certain in this story I'm figuring out, Stacey. We've got a lot of terrible and unreliable narrators. It was her second marriage. I, do, I don't know what age she was. And she was reportedly pregnant with his child when they wed. This was about as turbulent a union as you can imagine. They had multiple separations, reconciliations, and even a couple of attempts at divorce before the one that finally stuck in 1979. By this time, Jerry Lee had reinvented himself as a country music singer, and throughout the 70s, he had something like 17 top 10 singles on oh, the country wow. charts, yeah. But he was not doing well. Um, alcohol, amphetamines, and barbiturates were destroying his stomach. He would ultimately have like an ulcer rupture or something. Uh, he nearly died in uh, 81, I think. So his behavior was increasingly erratic. Let's talk about some things that happened during this marriage. Oh, goody. <laughs> in September 1976, Jerry Lee's bass player, a guy named Butch Owens, stopped by his house to drink, hang out, you know, chillin'. Like you do. At some point, Jerry Lee pulled out a 357 <sighs> Magnum and pointed it at Butch. Look down the barrel of this, he said, then aimed just to Butch's right. I'm going to shoot that Coca-Cola bottle over there or my name ain't Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, God. Fun thing about bullets, they can ricochet, and this one did, leaving Butch with not one but two holes in his chest. Apparently, Jerry Lee missed the Coca-Cola bottle, but not his bassist. Butch survived after emergency surgery. Holy Jerry, Jerry was charged with misdemeanor shooting a firearm in the city limits of Memphis, and that's all very normal behavior. Although, uh, <clears throat> it may have informed what happened... On the night of November 22nd, 1976, or actually the early morning hours. So it gets worse. Mm. Depends on your feelings about Elvis, I guess. <laughs> oh, no. This was the day when at three o'clock in the morning, a very drunk Jerry Lee raced his car up the driveway at Graceland and smashed it into the gate. <gasps> he was shouting at the guard in the gatehouse, I want to see all this. You tell him the killer's here. Which was a less cool thing to be shouting once the guard realized that Jerry Lee had a thirty-eight Derringer on his lap. Nope. Jerry Lee was arrested and charged with carrying a pistol in public drunkenness. I guess we didn't have DUI laws at the time. What the hell? There, no, there is not a law in the state of Tennessee. Everything's <laughs> legal in Tennessee. Back uh, to the divorce from wife number four. Nothing ever happens to Jerry Lee Lewis when he's arrested, by the way. He's like... There's a lot of gunplay. There's a lot of driving cars badly. There's a lot of... Anyway. It's always springtime. He's always getting bounced out of the prison. Just Yeah, he just pays whatever fine they want him to pay and wow. goes, on, goes about his life. Consequences, they're a thing. Back to the divorce from wife number four, Jaron Pate. Oh, God. During court proceedings, she testified that when she had called Jerry Lee to talk about money, she had had to go on food stamps to feed their daughter he said she didn't need to worry about it because, quote, you're not going to be around very long anyway, and if you don't get off my back and leave me alone, you will end up in the bottom of the lake at the farm with chains on you. Excuse me? That's a threat. <sighs> on the 8th of June, 1982, she was supposedly sunbathing at a friend's home and drowned in their pool. Oh, my God. She and Jerry Lee were due in court to wrap up the divorce on June 21st. Huh. Was... 
that ever investigated? It's Jerry Lee Lewis. I wow. I know nothing. That's not the worst of it. Oh God. Going back to that 1987 Village Voice piece by Nick Tosh's quote, almost a year later on June 7th, Jerry Lee married Sean Michelle Stevens, a 25-year-old cocktail waitress from Garden City, Michigan. The marriage lasted 78 days. On August 24th, Sean's mother got a call from one of Jerry Lee's minions. Sean didn't wake up this morning, the caller said. She's 25. There was blood on Sean's hand, in her hair, on her bra, on a lamp, on the carpet, bruises on her arms and hip. There appeared to be dried blood beneath her nails. And the ambulance man saw bright red claw marks on the back of Jerry Lee's hand that morning. But the autopsy report, which made no mention of blood or bruises, attributed Sean's death to an overdose of methadone, one of the sundry drugs kept in plenty at the Lewis mansion. Jerry Lee said that yes, he and Sean had bickered, but it was not serious. I was in no mood to argue. All I wanted to do was watch Twilight Zone, he told the Inquirer. The night after Sean's body was found, her sister Denise telephoned Jerry Lee from Michigan. Your sister's dead, he slurred. Your sister's dead and she was a bad girl. I'm extremely angry on Sean's family's behalf here. There's a 1984 Rolling Stone article on this called The Strange and Mysterious Death of Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis by Richard Ben Kramer that is very, very long, but it it makes a compelling case that Jerry Lee had compromised the various public institutions of DeSoto County, Mississippi, which borders Memphis to the... It's the northernmost county Another in place where there are no laws? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Richard Ben Kramer really really strongly suggest that uh, he and his manager had effectively called in favors with the local constabulary, etc., to make sure he got away with murdering his 25-year-old wife, who had suffered abuse at his hands, according to numerous witnesses, and was actively planning to leave him, again, just a few months into the marriage. I mean, 78 days. This is terrible. Mm-hmm. So the link to that article is in our sources. Uh, and yeah, if you want to feel depressed about how small town policing and prosecuting work, do give it a read. I will say a few things. She was found in the bed in a in the guest room of the house. There was no indication she had slept there, though. So how? Right. Jerry Lee paid for the autopsy himself, not the county. So, oh, well, I bet that's probably verifiable uh-huh. science. Yeah, it was done in Memphis by the same coroner who uh, had done Elvis. So Mm. good stuff. Jerry Lee had her body taken to Faraday, Louisiana for burial in the Lewis family plot. Again, three, four month marriage with an assembly of God's service that was apparently all about him and how hard life is for Jerry Lee. Sean and her family are Detroit Catholics. And let's just say that the injury done to them by all of this is unconscionable. Yeah, we maybe so. need to get some cold case detectives on this. This well, is all pretty classic, you know, the husband did it behavior. Yeah. When I was Googling around, uh, I did see that Once Upon a Crime podcast did cover this in December 2019 with our friend Erica Kelly. Oh, fantastic. Of Southern Fried True Crime. So if you want to- Hey, de- y'all. <laughs> if you want to deep dive on this, I would check that out. We'll link to to that as well. So moving on, because Jerry Lee certainly does, in 1984, the next year, he married a woman named Carrie McCarver. They had one child and were together for 21 years, which incidentally is how old Carrie was when they married. Oh, no. no. (laughs) (sighs) She first met the killer at a Toys for Tots appearance in Memphis when she was 10 years old. Jesus Christ. She swore then and there that she'd marry that boy. No, poster on the wall? Uh-huh. No. But again, they were together 21 years. This but era, wait, how old was she when they got... They, she was 21? Mm-hmm. But she so, met him when she was 10? Met him when she was 10, reconnected with him at 18. Wow. But this is when he was pursuing Sean. Oh, God. So after she mysteriously died... Uh, this era is about the time where decades of hard living and disappointments caught up to Jerry Lee. One article I saw quoted his daughter Phoebe as saying that he had nearly died at every hospital in Memphis. Claim to fame. Oh my God. This is also a period where the IRS was especially active against him. And from 1993 to 97, he, Carrie, and their young son lived in Ireland. 
He denied this was a way of avoiding the tax man, but apparently once the tax issues were resolved, they came home. So, Evade tax charges or a murder charge? I don't know. You decide, man. So I didn't find much about the divorce. Uh, I will share the opening graph from a Memphis Action News 5 story on the web, which probably explains why. A Mississippi judge has approved a divorce settlement between Jerry Lee Lewis and his sixth wife, Carrie Lynn McCarver Lewis. The settlement was reached Wednesday, the same day the case was to go to trial. The judge promptly sealed the court records. Oh, interesting. Yep. So thus ended the longest but not the last marriage for Jerry Lee. Friends, I don't know how to properly explain wife number seven without appearing to be making fun of my fellow Southerners. And seriously, Jerry Lee, you're not helping with the cousin jokes, okay? In March of 2012, 76-year-old Jerry Lee Lewis married a woman named Judith Brown, who had previously been married to Jerry Lee's cousin, Rusty Brown. Oh, my God. Who is the brother of, you're not going to believe it. No. Myra Gale Brown. No. 13-year-old. Mm-hmm. Apparently, Judith has caused some controversy in the family as Jerry Lee's adult daughter with Myra had been working as his manager and held power of attorney. Once he was married, that arrangement ended. Family members claimed that Judith was trying to take control of Jerry Lee's fortune. Jerry Lee ended up suing his daughter. She sued him back. Most of that case was thrown out in 2019. I don't know where things stand with that. Well, it's way easier to date your family. There's a lot less to explain than like an ordinary date when you come to the family Sunday supper. (sighs) Wow. Wow. So this marriage continues to work, apparently. In March of this year, a couple weeks after Judith Lewis excitedly posted about their second vaccination shots on Facebook, and after a year of quarantining together at Jerry Lee's ranch in Mississippi, the couple renewed their vows in front of a hundred or so guests. Oh, wow. Negative COVID tests were required. Oh, good on them for that, at least. Mm -hmm. With Donnie Swaggart, cousin Jimmy's son, officiating. The ceremony ended with Donnie saying, Killer, you may kiss your bride. Oh, no. So that's the seven marriages, divorces, possible murder of Jerry Lee Lewis, the last man standing from the Sun Records heyday of Memphis musical glory, and not a very good dude, it seems. He's got a whole lot of trash cans going on. Oh, a whole lot. Goodness gracious, great trash cans of fire. All on fire. I mean, just... (laughs) That was trashy. I don't know if he's an all-star or not. Whew. It's it's not good. No, none of that is good. No. We have no child statutory laws. We have no legal age of consent. We have murder. Bigamy. Like, when you get a nickname, you don't anticipate taking the nickname seriously. <laughs> I mean... People call you killer. That's, you know, probably not what you should do to get your nickname. Mama knew. Trying to get him into Bible school. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Mama knew. Wonder and if there like, were dead animals in his neighborhood too growing oh up. My God. It's terrible. So apparently, I mean, I saw apparently at the time it was just a see you later killer. Like it was just an informal thing and he just kind of took to it and, and it stuck. Oh, I bet he took to it and it stuck. Like he stuck them. But it wasn't apparently about any problematic behaviors. Although maybe he was a killer with the ladies. As a 14-year-old, Jerry Lee Lewis, unlucky in love. I, it's, I, I, yeah. I'm a little stunned many by trash all cans. of that. That's bountifuls. Many, many trash cans. I will Stadiumfuls. say, I think his latest wife, again, when he was in his 70s, uh, was in her 60s. So finally, well, we someone got a little age appropriate. Yeah. Wow. All right. That's what I got. That is a well done Trashy story, Stacy. That was terrible. Great trash cans of fire. I thought Andrew Cuomo was bad. Well, he he looks like a puppy compared to uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Southern culture on the skids, indeed. Oh, cousins. Gotta love them or shoot them. I don't know. All right. I think that's it for us. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and spending your time with us on another week of Trashy Divorces. We'll be back on Wednesday with the Trashy Breakup on this streaming platform whatever you listen on we'll be back on patreon with dumpster dive on monday spiderwebs with all of the cuomo lot connections as well as nightcap chat per use yeah and if you want some more 
Trash Candy, check out bit.ly slash Trash Candy to get to our little public catalog over on the Patreon device. Sorry, you can just do that in your browser. It's not a separate device. Gotta make it so complicated. I Anyway. Great balls of fire. I'm all, I'm all agitated. No, I'm all, I need to take a shower. That's bad. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Have a great week. Keep those hands clean. And keep your hearts trashy. Big love y'all. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.